0: Thank you all for for your presence here today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And thanks to all those who are joining us uh, online and uh, sharing this time together. Thanks to uh, th- all of those who participated in, in leading us in, in, uh, in worship today. It is a new year. We made it over the border of the new year. Sonia and I began the first day yesterday of the 54th year of our marriage and so forth. So. We really enjoy that, so that's that's a good thing. I'm going to pull this down a little bit and see how it goes. Um, it's a new year, but a strange new year. It's still it's new, but not yet in the way that we wanted to. It's still limited by COVID, and uh, we're hoping for a year of real transition, of real transition out of this pandemic and um, to be able to really experience that newness of a new experience of time and and uh, all of the things that we do we though also keep in mind those of our of our congregation who've experienced losses those who are going through sickness those who are struggling with all kinds of things remember uh, Spencer Wan and the death of his mother in Hong Kong um, and uh, and just all all of that I also want to say just before we get right into it that at the end of this service uh, we do one of these little rituals that uh, comes at the transition of the years after the benediction we'll have a very brief formal meeting of the church corporation represented by those here today uh, to elect trustees for 2022 this is required it's a formality for the um uh, but required by the state since uh, the elders constitute the, the uh, trustees of the corporation. Um, as, as Kyle uh, said, uh, for quite a while now, actually quite a number of years, I've regularly uh, started each year, if I preach on the first Sunday of the year, uh, a this practice of looking at uh, the this text not the whole of the Sermon on the Mount but this text that uh, can be that you heard uh, Lynette read so beautifully for us just a, just a moment ago Matthew the sixth chapter verses 19 to 34 and it to me it it has been a wonderful discipline to take me back again and again and to take us back again and again into into Jesus into his heart into his mind and uh, just in one of those most remarkable episodes of teaching in the history of the world, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and especially this passage that lies right at the heart of it. Matthew takes us up to a a mountain, or a a hillside, we might say, uh, near the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus talks to his disciples and to the crowds who've gathered to Jesus from far and wide. They've mostly come, as Matthew shows or as Luke shows, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, to get something from Jesus. They want to get healing because they could get a healing that no one else could give. But that renewal of life that Jesus gave them through the healings went along also with a proclamation, a proclamation of God's coming kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens, as as Matthew regularly calls it. That realm of God, the kingdom of that realm breaking into our messed up world. The healings were such a perfect sign, a signpost pointing to the new life of that kingdom of God. That even people weighed down by perennial sickness, by infection, by broken bodies, broken minds, as they came to Jesus would come also to listen. Now from the perspective of 21st century, certainly New York standards, US standards, most of those people that were there on that hillside were living in abject poverty. Why not a single one of them had a cell phone. Um, They were farmers, they were villagers, they were laborers, fishermen. They were slaves. No doubt some also were better off for that time. Now, you, you might think that Jesus would speak to them with pity, as powerless, as oppressed, as hopeless, as people who had no nothing to fall back on, no resources, without any control of their lives. And sometimes, of course, in the Gospels, you do get the crowds thought of almost in in those those kinds of terms. After all, the vast majority of the people that Jesus is talking to, living in those villages and farms and towns, would live with the same resources that their their fathers and grandfathers and and, uh, mothers and grandmothers had, had had, and that their children would have. They'd live in the same circumstances of life. But Jesus speaks to them in the Sermon on the Mount with, with a remarkable directness, if I can say it that way. It, it's expressed at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount that he spoke as one who had authority. So there was this kind of remarkable authority that flows through practically every sentence. And he says such remarkable things all the way through, often things that can seem puzzling or Even funny, the log sticking out of a person's eye or turning the other cheek to talk about puzzling till you actually take time to struggle with them and listen to them. In in the way Jesus talks to the people, there is not even a hint of pity or condescension in his words. Jesus never talks down to the people or softens his teaching. As we've said many times, he doesn't look at them as people with little education and almost no hope of any real change in their circumstances. And he therefore does not try any well, he could, but uh, does not try to make things easy for them. He treats them as full fledged human beings, if I can say that grown up adults, capable, responsible but also very much beloved by God. Yes, there are lots of things that they, or if we transfer it to our time, that we can't control, as we all experience in this time of pandemic and so many other things. But it's in what they and what we can shape that our life is defined as Jesus portrays it. It's in our own hearts, our vision of life and the world, in our decisions and allegiances and choices and purposes. It's in our creativity and our love. And Jesus never backs away from that sense of respect and love for all the people who have come to him. But that very sense of respect can carry a problem if things really depend on my decisions and purposes and love, <sighs> well, then things are very insecure indeed. Inside, I i won't speak for you, I know the chaos of my own choices, how messed up my decisions and relationships can be. Jesus may respect me, But if he really knew me, well, that's why I'm so anxious about things, about life, about all aspects of everything. That's why I drive, drive, drive to secure my life, to protect myself, to not be so vulnerable to a hostile world. And even be vulnerable to myself and my own mistakes and my own distortions of myself. So right in the middle of this section and thinking about all of this and the way in which Jesus talks about, Jesus comes in and says, with a straight face, and as though he really meant it, and here reading Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 34, actually going to read verse, verse 25 right here. Because it's right in the middle of this. That's why I'm telling you, refuse anymore to be anxious about your life. Now I'm reading my own translation here your psyche. What you should eat, what you should drink, or about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't that life something more than food? And the body something more? than clothing. First, notice Jesus doesn't seem to be joking. He's serious. And then notice, I mentioned just, I threw in there a Greek word that that when he speaks of life, he uses this Greek word, we've talked about it many times before, psyche, or Or psyche, as it often comes into English. It's the word that's translated usually soul. If I ask, what's the New Testament Greek word for soul? The word that would be the correct answer would be this one, psyche or psyche. It's a word that seems spiritual. So it's rather striking that Jesus goes from life, soul, psyche, to what you eat or what you drink. And then pairs that off with the body and clothing in that passage. Jesus clearly doesn't try to separate out my spirituality, my soul, from the body and the physical. He sees all of us people as living holds, as physical and spiritual. So I say, okay, I, granted, granted. But, but still, how can he say this? Refuse to be anxious about your life. Don't worry about your life. Really? It's even worse if he says, don't worry about your soul, especially for a preacher. Really? Now that's just one more thing I'm doing wrong. I've got even more to be anxious about than I thought. As is so often the case, Jesus says something that, and I find this often to be the case, I have to say, that I would never say, that I could never do. It seems impossible if you take seriously what he says. But as with Jesus' parables, I think it's like he plants something like a Blinder in your mind. The question is always there. Can you hear something in this? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Can you see anything? Think about it. Jesus is trying to open us to see something more and greater than we normally see, to change our Thinking, that translation of that very important word, metanoia, repentance, it's usually translated. Change our thinking, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, and in this case, especially the way we see God. And what Jesus Jesus is talking about in this whole section, the crucial focus actually is not just on us and our decisions and responsibilities, but on God, on the reality of God, on the heart and purpose and love of God. The God that Jesus knows, the God that Jesus embodies. It's that incarnation that we've been celebrating throughout Advent. The people that surround Jesus as he speaks are almost all Jews. All of his disciples are Jews, of course. All of those who opposed him were Jews. Even almost all of those who were just curious about him, curious enough to stand in the crowd. They've been reared on the story of Israel, as Jesus has. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of the heavens, God's kingdom breaking in, It's that great story recounted in Scripture that gives Jesus' words meaning, gives them power, gives them the ability to stir hope and anticipation for change, the expectation of an anointed king, Messiah. These are people who know what Jesus calls that greatest commandment. It's a commandment that was recited by Jews, by the people of Israel, daily if they were at all piles. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now this is not something that we usually recite again and again. But it had a power because it lived daily in the hearts and lives of these people. And I, I want to in, invite um, one of our elders, Paul Steltzer, who has written, set this, these words to music uh, to, to come up. And for, for us to experience something of what it means to, to celebrate this as something that is written on our, on our hearts.
1: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all, of all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you this day ought to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, bind them as symbols on your hands and tie them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.
0: Think of yourself reciting this every morning. Think of it every time you settled for prayer that you bind it literally on your forehead in a little box there on your forehead. But these people didn't know just that passage. Of course, that was crucial, but they also had those 10 commandments. They knew the first of those 10 commandments of the Torah. Deuteronomy five, verses six through eight. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery you shall have no other god before me, gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. These people are monotheists, we might say. They don't worship the gods of the Greeks or the gods of the Romans or the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the empire even though they live among those people who who do. So Jesus is not really concerned to convince them as he wants them to understand God, not to worship Apollo or to worship Aphrodite or to worship Jupiter, Optimus, Maximus or Isis and Osiris from Egypt. What Jesus is concerned about is the character and the nature of the very God they speak of when they daily recite The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, Jesus is going into the very heart of their faith, of our faith in God, who they, who we are before God. Who that God of Scripture and worship and hope and promise and Torah is. What it means to be in relation to God. Jesus wants to open their eyes, to open our eyes to see the reality. The person, the God who is really God. The God Jesus knows and embodies as he comes as one of us. How do you help people who know God to see God anew? you? How do you help them to bring into focus the human-made gods that they don't recognize as idols, but that promise life and security while feeling, filling them with anxiety and worry? Jesus wants them and us down the line to live in the fullness of life as God's children. And he challenges them, as you read across the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, to live with integrity and to live with joy and live out their identities as people who are the light of the world, as you remember Jesus calls them, as the Israel of God. Yes, they may live in, like Jesus did, in an obscure village like Nazareth, but they can seek the kingdom of God. They can be the city set on a hill. They can seek God's faithful justice. That's why Jesus' teachings not only touched people on that hillside long ago, They're just as challenging, maybe even more so, to 21st century citizens of Western capitalist economies with global corporate structures. Our whole passage from chapter 6, verse 19 through 34, is a discourse on theology, if you will. Theology the way Jesus knows it not abstract propositions about the nature of God, but a vision of the reality and character of God. Jesus wants people to see and know the God who, the one God who really is God, the one who is creator and sustainer and gracious giver of life. When Jesus says, refuse to be anxious about your life, he starts by referring back to what he's just said and then goes forward to unfold implications. Verse 25 starts, That's why I'm telling you, refuse anymore to be anxious about your life, your psuche, your soul, your whole being, what you should eat or what you should drink or about your body, your soma, what you're going to wear. Isn't that life something more than food and the body something more than clothing so he looks back that's why I'm telling you and forward to thinking about you who you are so let's go back and listen to what Jesus said leading up to this statement and see where he's leading us. immediately before talking about anxiety in this passage Jesus talks about serving two gods, two lords An echo of those basic commands of Torah But the choice is not between God and Dionysus or Zeus or Jupiter Everyone that he's talking to would agree about that Rather it's God and the translation that you heard read said money That's an interpretive translation the word that's really used in, that by Matthew or by Jesus as Matthew records him is mammon. A name, a name that stands for, yes, money, wealth, possessions, stuff, circumstances, what you need to get along. Je- Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two lords. You're either going to hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't, you can't be a servant to God and mammon. It's God and mammon. Wealth, possessions, stuff. All that that surrounds our lives. Mammon. On the negative side is the God behind so much that we can recognize easily as as negative, behind behind empire, behind many forms of power and slavery and war. But it's also the God who seems to provide the, the good life of resources, the ability to do things, status, influence. Mammon is the ultimate practical God. The God who will provide, who will overcome difficulties, who will make your life secure. For so many of us, it's why we get out of bed in the morning and go to work. Now, mammon's tricky though. You don't find temples with altars and idols to mammon, usually, but even the monotheistic people of God in Jesus' audiences, even. Even Jesus' disciples were immersed in the lure of mammon. Anxiety, being anxious for your life, is one of the chief calls of mammon. It's the problem that is supposed to be fixed by having a lot of what it takes to get along, as the old Broadway song said. How can Jesus say so unreasonably that you can't be a servant to God and to mammon?
1: Ah!
0: That's me. Well, you go back. Go back and look at what comes before. God and mammon are two potential lords for us humans. But one is God in reality, and one is not. Mammon is a wonderful or terrible human-made Lord who offers power and delights. Jesus doesn't say a word about Zeus or even the worship of the emperor, but Mammon is the God worshipped by all the world and not a one of us can really escape the anxiety we feel by needing more of what mammon offers. We want more, we need more. That's why Jesus seems so crazy. You cannot be a servant to God and to mammon. (sighs) Our text, In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it's the very beginning, begins with very practical theology. Jesus says, don't treasure up for yourselves treasures just for this earth, where moth and rust make things vanish, and where thieves are breaking through and stealing. But treasure up for yourselves treasures in the heaven of God's realm. It's a little over translation, it's literally just the word heaven, but in the sense of God's realm, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Where neither moth nor rust make things vanish, and where thieves can't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. The problem of our understanding, or my understanding, is that it's too small, too limited. We look around and we see the world we live in. We're practical people. We bet our lives on that. We put our treasure in all its various forms. We put our treasure down to earth. Even though we know it's vulnerable, even though we know it's passing, even though we know it causes us incurable anxiety. Jesus says, You're excluding the greatest part of reality. You're excluding the realm of God. Uranos, heaven. God and God's realm are real. In fact, they're more, more solid and more real than the granite of the highest mountains, much less your closet or your safe deposit box or your political power base or whatever it is. That's the challenge of God. God is real indeed. God's love actually created the whole of that physical reality. And God's love pervades it. God pervades the whole of that reality. God is here as close as your heartbeat, as they say, but also beyond the galaxy. Can my heart and mind take in and trust such amazing news, such amazing good news? Or will I just trust in stashing a treasury of mammon away? A treasury that I keep, need to keep adding to as we go along every day if I possibly can. Then Jesus says, open your eyes To see with the freedom, with what freedom and generosity God comes into this reality that we know. This generosity and freedom that flows from God, from knowing God and knowing the reality of God. Matthew chapter 6 verses 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. We've talked about this in the past. I'm not going to go into details about the meaning of that particular phrase. It goes into the, the, the character of the way people understood the eye back in those days. The lamp of the body is the eye. So if your eye sees generously, your whole body will be illuminated. But if your eye is envious that's a translation of meaning it's literally the if you have an evil eye but it means if you're envious your whole body will go dark if then the light inside you is darkness what a great darkness the treasures of mammon are based in calculation desire anxiety and envy. It turns the light of love of God, who with extravagant generosity creates a world and loves each one of us as his creatures. It takes that and turns it, that love into envy and darkness. And so we live in anxiety. If we're really going to live a new year, with joy, given by living the reality of a real God, not a human-made puppet God that makes us anxiety-ridden slaves, not sons and daughters, then we've got to notice what that real God is doing in us and in all that's around us. We've got to practice what it means to love with our whole heart and soul and strength. We worry about stuff for our life. I dare you to say honestly that you don't. But for Jesus, it's you, yourself, your life, your soul, your body that's really important. That's, as he says, something more that's truly beloved by God. Coming back to the center that we started from, Matthew 6, 19, uh, 6, verse 25. That's why I'm telling you, refuse anymore to be anxious about your life, your psuke, okay, what you should eat, what you should drink, about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't that life something more? Notice he doesn't define it, he just wants you to think about it. Something more play on, something more than food. The body is something more than clothing. You're the one that the God of the universe wants a relationship with. Whether you're in line yesterday outside for a a community of hope meal, Or you're Jeff Bezos in a rocket ship fueled by mammon. Even if you're Jeff Bezos, even then, God loves you. We're all just little dustlings on this tiny planet. Jesus says, What's great is the real God. He's so great that he can love even us, minute beings and even things much smaller than, than us. And so Jesus goes on in Matthew uh, chapter 6 verses 26 and 27. look carefully at the birds of the heaven, and he uses this, the term heaven. Probably in the sense that we would think of the sky, but it also resonates with the idea of your father in heaven. Look carefully at the birds of the heaven. Notice they're not sowing or reaping, nor gathering in the barns. What's more, your own heavenly father is feeding them. Aren't you more important than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single arm's length to how long you'll live? How do you think of God and God's greatness? We're religious people. We are ready to talk about God's sovereignty and control, about God's majesty and limited power. But when Jesus portrays that that limitless majesty, he sees God taking delight in feeding birds in countless (laughs) forests and meadows. And he sees it as a measure of God's even greater delight in the human daughters and sons who can know him and share in his love. You're something more. So much more than all that mammon the god that all the world worships and serves like slaves all put together is not worth as much as you are but jesus says that don't let it go to your head humans can make a god like mammon and enslave themselves to it but that doesn't mean that we can actually control our own survival or remove ourselves from our vulnerability to a virus, or cancer, or a tornado, or the failing brakes on a truck. We live on a planet with sharp edges, and gravity, and dangers. But we live in a universe, a far grander reality, created by the love and generosity of God. And we are beloved creatures of God, even with our vulnerabilities and fragility keep looking Jesus says learn how to see God everywhere that's how you really do theology Matthew 6 verses 28 through 30 and about clothing why do you get anxious observe well those uh, lilies or poinsettias out in the field how do they grow They don't labor hard, they don't spend, but I'm telling you not even Solomon in all his glory was as well dressed as any one of them. But they're wild plants in the field. They're here today and tomorrow perhaps used to start a fire as our poinsettia has about reached the end of its ability to sustain itself here. If God is clothing them so beautifully, isn't he much more clothing you? My little faith people. It's so hard for us humans to get perspective. When we're with Jesus, learning about the real God, not not Mammon or any of the other auxiliary gods of pleasure and power and identity and celebrity that we love to make and to worship. When we're with Jesus, things seem to get turned upside down. We sometimes look at the grandeur of nature and think how small we are. Or we look at the unbelievable complexity of a single DNA molecule and we think how we must be just giant robots carrying around selfish genes. Or we learn that we live in a galaxy that is so big that it takes light a hundred thousand years just to go from one edge of the galaxy to the other edge of the galaxy but that our Milky Way is only one of something like they estimate two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. But on the other hand, that you and I, we are just about as big in relationship to the smallest subatomic particles as that whole universe is in relation to you. Jesus says the God of this vast, astonishingly large, astonishingly small universe is not just a mathematician and physicist, but a God who loves beauty and loves life and loves you. You can watch God at work anytime you want. Just look at a bird, marvel at a lily or look into your own heart and psyche your life. Love God back for the love that's embodied in you. Ultimately, of course, we, when we think about it, we know mammon can't do a thing for you. Ultimately, ultimately. But you will be in relation with that loving God even when the earth is no more. You are something more, Jesus says. Relax. Relax into the universe of God's amazing love and grace. When we open our little faith eyes, And see where Jesus has brought us. Then we can begin to grasp with our tenuous faith. How he can say, refuse to be anxious about your life, your psyche, your body. Matthew chapter 6 verses 31 to 34. Getting toward the end of our passage. That's why you should refuse to live in anxiety, always say, what are are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? That thinking makes you like the nations, always avidly seeking all these things. But you have a heavenly father who knows that these are all real needs for you. God does not deny. God wants that abundance. God created all of those things for your life and enjoyment. So, first, seek for God's kingdom rule and God's faithful justice. And all of these things will be his additions for you. The result? You refuse to be anxious as you anticipate tomorrow. Let tomorrow be anxious for itself each day carries all the trouble it needs. Practice refusing to be fooled by the little gods we humans make. You'll learn better as you practice more, at least I hope I will. Help others to see the foolishness and learn what is real, what is lasting. Use life for what matters, what matters today, what matters this year. As you learn the reality of this God of love, seek his kingdom in this world as far as you can reach. It's beyond you or any of us. God will bring it about, but we can align ourselves with that grace and that love. Practice God's faithfulness and justice in all the relationships you touch, all that you can influence. You are a beloved child of God. Use your life to let that love you've received flow to others. That's how to make a year and a life. Learn to see the real God and the real you. Through the eyes of Jesus. Amen.